In death as in life, Silvio Berlusconi dominates the headlines. His legacy is not confined just to Italy. Donald Trump's legal charges are piling up, but his campaign for re-election is still on. How much will the media help? And telling the truth in a time of war, the hardships of reporting on your own military. Hello, I'm Meenakshi Ravi, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and analyze how news gets reported. It's not unusual in this age of modern populism for politicians to lie openly and on the record, to twist laws to accommodate their corruptions, to manipulate the media, and through all this, to have a following that stands by loyally, no matter what. Italy's former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, who died this past week, was a trailblazer in this genre of politics. During his heyday in the 1990s and 2000s, he wasn't just the country's longest-serving prime minister. He was simultaneously its biggest media mogul, the owner of the Mediaset conglomerate. Berlusconi created a cult of personality and navigated years of political battles and worsening scandals by keeping a firm grip on Italy's media. That influence and popularity was on full show as Italy marked his passing, remembering a man who left an indelible mark on the politics and media of his country and whose style has been mirrored by populist politicians well beyond Italy. Silvio Berlusconi's send-off, a grand affair full of pomp and pathos, lauded by supporters and scorned at by critics, a completely televised spectacle, it could not have been more emblematic of the man himself. One thing that I've been reflecting on over the past few days when thinking about the grandeur around his funeral um, are the, the mega screens that were installed in Milan's Piazza Duomo. That normally happens only for World Cup finals. Berlusconi came to dominate the Italian political arena and he was able to construe a completely different narrative around his personality, which had different elements to it. His television empire and his self-made man um, rhetoric and also his football team, AC Milan. So that, that is very unique and I think his exit through a televised, a very public state funeral is very symbolic of the way he really lived his life under um, the, the cameras and out in public. I think that the coverage of his death was exactly the mirror of the coverage of his life because um, everything was so polarized. 90% of media coverage, he was uh, covered like a saint, like you know, a very big leader. But for uh, a small percentage, and you know, on the social web, his representation was of a guy who was very, you know bad for the country. So I think that the coverage was polarized pretty much as his life was polarized. Berlusconi was a man ahead of his time. In the 1990s, he shattered the mold of a lumbering, out-of-touch and deeply corrupt political class, replacing it with the figure of himself as a novus homo, a new man from outside the establishment. In truth, Berlusconi was anything but an outsider. Through the 1970s and 80s, he manipulated Italy's institutions, befriending people who made laws and people who broke them to build a multi-business empire, spanning real estate, supermarkets, advertising and media. And it was Berlusconi's media conglomerate, Mediaset, 
that had a truly revolutionary impact across Italy. So Berlusconi started very much like a pirate in the 1980s, using loopholes in regulations about broadcasting. Then he managed to take control over three out of seven national TV channels in the country, which also happened to be the, the channels that were in a way kind of more entertainment-oriented, more youth-oriented. So in so doing, he really managed to capture an audience and a very rich advertising source Let's consider that when Berlusconi created his television empire, there was only Rai, the public broadcasting in Italy. Commercial television did not exist before Berlusconi. So, for Italian people, suddenly they had all these uh, entertainment programs, really funny and full of these, you know, women. And when people say that Berlusconi was very able to use his uh, media to pass his political agenda, they don't understand what was his real revolution. He was really good to create a culture focused on money, on freedom, on entertainment. The culture that he was able to create was the base for his political message. He would not have been able to do what he did and to sustain his political clout without the media that he owned. When he stepped into politics, in January of 1994, he went on air with a famous uh, speech. L'Italia è il paese che amo. Qui ho le mie radici, le mie speranze, i miei orizzonti. And in three months, using his media and using his money, he was able to build the largest political party in Italy, and he became prime minister. He used this uh, media power taking advantage of the fact that in Italy there are no laws regulating media concentration and the use of the media for political purposes. This has been a key feature for its uh, political success, but is also a lesson not to be forgotten in Western-style democracy. Of all the innovations attributed to Berlusconi, the one cited the most since his death has been the genre of politics he championed. Silvio Berlusconi was a populist showman. Berlusconi was the frontrunner of the brand of modern demagoguery seen in so many countries in the past decade. From Italy's far-right Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni to Hungary's Viktor Orban, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil and Boris Johnson in the UK, there are many adherents to Berlusconi's political style. No one has mirrored him quite as closely, though, as former US President Donald Trump. The scandals that pockmarked Berlusconi's time in office, corruption, embezzlement, tax evasion, sexual misconduct, are all strikingly similar to accusations plaguing Trump. Berlusconi bent laws, parliamentary procedures, and public sympathy to escape Houdini-like with no time in jail for any of his offenses. Trump is aiming, hoping, for the same. The only crime that I have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it. I remember when uh, Donald Trump was first elected in 2016, a lot of commentators said that actually Italy had had its own Donald Trump more than 20 years.
before the U.S. Both men come from real estate and from commercial television, and both men had a playbook which was very much focused on polarizing public opinion for what they stood for and against everything else and what their political opponents um, stand for. Berlusconi's story provides a cautionary tale for those who think that Trump is now out of the game because of these legal indictments. In fact, Berlusconi showed just how deep this illusion about the neutrality of political institutions, the neutrality of procedures, and the neutrality of law runs. È assurdo che mentre questa persona lavori giorno e notte in questa direzione ci siano dei funzionari, dei dipendenti, degli impiegati dello Stato pagati coi soldi dei cittadini che tramino, che tramino, che tramino contro il Presidente del Consiglio. There is a very large section of the populace who thinks that basically judges are politically biased, that they are prosecuting politicians because of their political agenda. Hence, being investigated or prosecuted can turn into a weapon for the politicians who are the target of these trials. As far as the joke of an indictment, it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing for this country. I mean, the only good thing about it is it's driven my poll numbers way up. Can you believe that? And Trump is already very much exploiting his political status as someone under indictment, as proof, right, that the deep state is really there and he's trying to attack him using any excuse in order to get him out of, of play. Berlusconi's death didn't mark the end of the Berlusconi era. That happened some time ago. While his party, Forza Italia, is part of the political coalition currently in government, his time at the top of Italian politics ended back in 2013, when a tax fraud scandal at Mediaset finally slowed his political ride. The legacy Berlusconi leaves is writ large across Italy in the country's media, across parts of its popular culture, in the political characters that Italians seem to tolerate. And Berlusconismo itself remains alive, not just in his homeland, but around the world. As one Italian commentator said after his death, he was the first populist ever in a Western democracy. His style and the way he approached politics and public life was very different to anything we had seen before. Berlusconi completely changed the relationship between politicians, leaders, and um, their voters. Moving from Berlusconi to Donald Trump, the former US president has been actively using his numerous legal battles as fodder for his re-election campaign. Flo Phillips was watching how this week's events went down. This past Tuesday, former President Trump had 37 charges issued against him, including, quote, willfully withholding classified documents and obstructing justice. Throw in previous charges like lying about paying off a porn star or inciting the 2021 attack on the US Capitol, and that charge tally now exceeds 100. Immediately after the court session, true to form, Trump went into campaign and damage control mode. Arrested on fake and fabricated charges. The speech was carried in full on Fox News. 
Remember, this is a network that has faced serious legal trouble from its promotion of Trump's lies during the 2020 election count, recently paying nearly $800 million to settle just one case. And yet, Fox went to town, even running a text strap calling President Joe Biden a, quote, wannabe dictator. Other American news networks went wall-to-wall -wall with the legal drama, but refused to broadcast Trump's speech. We are here to bring you the news. It hurts our ability to do that if we live broadcast what we fully expect in advance to be a litany of lies and false accusations. We're not carrying his remarks live because, frankly, he says a lot of things uh, that are not true and sometimes potentially dangerous. CNN's position was particularly interesting, given that the network hosted a Trump town hall event just last month, letting him speak live for more than an hour. I want Europe to put up more money because they're laughing at us. They think we're a bunch of jerks. CNN took a lot of heat for that decision, which seemed to be much more about ratings and revenues than editorial values. It was reminiscent of the 2016 election campaign, when the networks gave Trump a disproportionate amount of airtime, more than double what they gave his Democratic rival, Hillary Clinton. How long will this moment of editorial clarity last for US media outlets? As the 2024 election draws ever closer, the decision about whether or not to platform Trump will only get tougher. Thanks, Flo. War reporting is some of the most challenging journalistic work there is. Apart from the obvious physical dangers, there are issues of access across battle zones and the task of cutting through government spin. However, the assignment takes on a new level of complication when journalists try to probe their own militaries, especially in the midst of a conflict. Many journalists fail as notions of patriotism or the realities of official retribution become obstacles that are impossible to surmount. Two recent wars in Ukraine and Ethiopia provide a glimpse of the burden journalists bear when reporting conflicts in their countries. The Listening Post's Ryan Coles now on one of the lesser-discussed challenges of war reporting, investigating corruption and crimes committed by your own country's fighting forces. Two journalists caught in two different conflicts, transformed unexpectedly into war reporters, one from Ethiopia, the other, Ukraine. When war broke out, they were faced with the task of not just reporting while fearing for their safety and that of their families and their countries, but with doing the job rigorously and objectively, regardless of which side they were reporting on. Anna Mironyak works with the Kyiv Independent. A few months into Russia's war on Ukraine, she found herself investigating a new military unit launched by President Zelensky, the International Legion. I investigated Russia's um, war crimes, atrocities like rape and torture. Uh, there were many stories like that. And then a source came and uh, brought this tip about some mismanagement in the International Legion. There is a convicted criminal who is wanted at his home country in Poland and who is now serving in the leadership. It was too strange to be true. One more so then, yeah, we started uh, investigating, finding out more. We're not going to be implicated by any means as leaders. Theft, physical threats with a gun, sexual harassment of uh, female medics. This story was among the most difficult choices in my life. Because on one hand, 
well, you are a Ukrainian, right? And you know that your army is protecting you. And at the same time, there are some people who are abusing the situation and doing some shady dealings uh, while nobody is watching. The story made a splash, and not just because of what it exposed, but because it was such a rare example of a Ukrainian outlet investigating its own military. So rare, in fact, that Kyiv Independent issued an op-ed defending their decision to publish. People were saying that we, by doing this story, were helping Russian propaganda machine. Um, but my response to that is that Russia can turn anything into propaganda. The purpose of journalism is not sugarcoating Ukraine's realities, is basically, you know, showing Ukraine as it is. I am patriotic, but this story is, was done out of patriotism because I believe that shedding light on the military is helping the military, not hurting it. If there's something that we would say is emblematic about corrupted journalistic treatment of wars, it's silence. It's not talking about the atrocities on our side, leaving the field open to only report on the atrocities of the other side. It's much easier to do public relations in effect than to really dig deep and illuminate truth, no matter how difficult or upsetting it might be for whoever. It's something that any journalist might struggle with, whatever the conflict, wherever it may be. In 2020, a war broke out in Ethiopia between the government, led by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, and the former de facto leaders of the country, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF. Lucy Kassa extensively covered the civil war, a brutal conflict that claimed an estimated 600,000 lives. Her first investigation began after she received information directly contradicting the government's narrative. The Prime Minister was saying, um, this is just a law enforcement operation. There was no civilian casualty. But I started to meet people who managed to flee from Tigray, and they told me the true picture of the war. I started to receive cases of sexual violence and killings, and I was shocked to have this information in my hands because of the terrible human rights abuses that I never imagined in my life. I didn't really uh, think whether I have to report. It was intuitive. Kassa's intuition was unusual. As a member of the minority ethnic group, the Tigrayans, Kassa's readers would have expected her to criticize the government. But when she started reporting war crimes on the other side, those of the TPLF, she crossed the line few reporters dared to. And she's paid the price. She now lives in exile. I wasn't aware of my ethnicity until I started living in Addis. I believe that way helped me to report objectively in this war. Otherwise, I, I could find it very difficult. Hiding the truth won't help anyone. So eventually what comes out is the truth, like both sides committed the crimes. The people who are citizens of a country or live there, they're in a real bind when the country goes to war. They're supposed to be true to the journalistic ethos that you seek the truth, no matter where it goes. Well. During war, there's a lot of reason to fear. Retribution, anger, retaliation. That's an incentive for the journalists, frankly, to trim their sails, go along with the flow, 
be blown with the propaganda wind of their own government. And unfortunately, journalists usually succumb to the pressure. It's an age-old battle. The idiom, the first casualty of war is truth, was coined back in 1917, specifically referencing the constraints of war reporters. This country is at war with Germany. In the pre-digital age, censorship was much easier. Governments could control the spread of information and often denied journalists access to the front lines. As technologies advance, access for journalists increased. This is what the war in Vietnam is all about. It allowed them to document and disseminate information unlike anything seen before, often revealing the horrifying realities of war. The Marines have burned this old couple's cottage. Yet the impact of this kind of investigative war reporting can seem intangible at times. While shocking details have been uncovered from countless conflicts, the revelations often take a lot of time to shift national attitudes or to help bring the fighting to an end. For those telling these stories, the burden of the work with its challenges and dangers is heavy, and many are still waiting for the reporting to make the difference it should. So there were messages that were passed to us uh, from uh, uh, military intelligence, um, which basically said they disliked it. Unfortunately, our reporting didn't lead to these commanders being removed from their positions, but the situation did change. Our story was published and then stories investigating domestic issues started appearing, which I believe is, is a good sign for Ukraine and for Ukraine's freedom of speech and democracy. It has created a huge impact. Uh, if it wasn't because of the investigations we journalists did, the war might have continued. I think it has forced the the international community to pressure this warring side into negotiation and sign peace deal. The Prime Minister Office released the statement that I am not a journalist. And, and then uh, they opened a huge online hate campaign. And uh, like physically I was attacked when I was in Addis. And then I had to flee because of this there are moments that were vital in reporting on war, but very few of them were turning points because the essence of propaganda is repetition, and the exceptions are just that. They're, well, they're exceptional. The higher calling of journalism involves a deeper kind of patriotism that your own country should be governed by truth rather than lies or deceptions or partial truths. And as much as we might despair about the shortage of such reporting, the fact that it exists makes the difference between a complete crushing of democratic possibilities and leaving those doors open. And finally, since the start of Russia's war on Ukraine back in February last year, the Kremlin's international English language broadcaster, RT, has been off the air and offline across much of the Western world. The channel hasn't completely forgotten audiences across the US and Europe, though. This past week, RT put out a video with some pretty poor animations of Western leaders, Biden, Sunak, and Ursula von der Leyen amongst them. The theme of the video? Failed brainstorming on a new round of sanctions against Russia. Watch until the end for a jibe about the banning of RT. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.
No. 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 That's bull. That's nonsense. We need some fresh ideas. Better, stronger, and effective. International Mall. <laughs> 